because she does she feels undeserving in some ways, um, which again I think can be applicable to situations in real modern life where yeah. you know maybe you don't feel a hundred percent comfortable with who you are, and so you brush off compliments or you know you just like your self conception is so different from how other people see you that you're not willing to you know accept the praise and the love of other folks around you so um a good lesson I think I just have the opposite problem I don't get enough praise so (laughs) (laughs) me too I also feel that way That's why we started a podcast to get praise. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Rate and review us. Welcome to the Dancing Dove Podcast, where Kayla and I discuss the legal and historical aspects of Tamara Pierce's Tortal novels. Today we'll be discussing the first half of In the Hands of the Goddess. Welcome back. Uh, Today we are going to be talking about the first half of In the Hands of the Goddess, which is the second book in Alana's series, The Song of Linus. Um, And today, Kayla is going to give us a quick summary of the book, and I might add stuff if if I think of anything. I am becoming quite an expert on the Tortal universe, a.k.a. I've read approximately 15 chapters. So (laughs) just saying, I'm killing it. Okay, so we are going to be taking you from chapters one through chapter five of In the Hand of the Goddess. We open up on the story and Alana meets the mother goddess in the woods, which is nuts. They talk about love and her fears And she meets probably the best character in the book, in my opinion, Faithful, the cat. Yep. Then we go back to court. Um, Alana continues to be afraid of Duke Roger. And he kind of like goads her into fighting and dueling with this guy who she wins against, which is great. But everyone thought that the guy was going to kill her. Um, Then it's... Jonathan's birthday, so she goes to the Dancing Dove, and she gets a present from George, who kisses her (laughs) in the Dancing Dove. It's crazy. (laughs) And she also asks him to find out some information on a nearby kingdom Mm -hmm. that they find out is going to be attacking them. So Alana, the chosen one that she is, brings back that information to the king and to Jonathan, who then get ready for war. And we see the beginnings of the battle in the final chapter of this episode, chapter five, where they have a battle, our first battle. And Alana kills someone. Yeah, it's a multiple someones, I think, if I recall. Well, I, you know what? Maybe. I only remember one, but it's because it was the first one and I was shocked yeah so let's go into yeah yeah let's do you have anything to add no I think that was a perfect perfect summary let's just go right into first impressions so what do you think yes I have said this before and I'll say it again there's so much that happens all the time in these books yes it's incredible and 
sometimes I'm like, wait, where are we at again? <laughs> but my major impression right now is I can't believe Alana killed someone, which maybe was clear from my summary. She's 15. Yeah. It's it's shocking which for sure. I was thinking about it, and I feel like a lot of the fantasy stories that I was a fan of growing up had non-humans as like the villains. Enemy. So it was yeah. really yeah. So it's just wild to think about Alana killing a human. Definitely. And I can't imagine when I was a kid if I would be, I don't know if I would have been as freaked out as I am now, but obviously she had to kill him. Like he, he was going to kill her. Right. Um. So yeah, that was my first impression. Obviously she's really com- coming into herself as a knight there. And there is a lot of love happening so far. There's a lot of talk about love. There's a lot of flirtation going on. Mm-hmm. I can't believe that George kissed her, and I can't wait to talk about that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I loved it so far. I can't wait to see what happens with this war and the battles. Oh, my God. And we met a really fun new character who they then killed right after that. So I know. Thor. I hate when that happens. Uh, yeah. So sad. I have to say, I think... Again, this speaks to what a great job she does building characters, that you love him so much. I really think Thor's death hits you really hard. Um, yeah. And, and you don't realize, like, oh, I just met him, like, a chapter ago. <laughs> um, but yeah. I think, as well, a broader point I wanted to make about my impression this time around is that um, something... I'm sorry, I'm going to bring up Lord of the Rings again. But something I really <laughs> liked about Lord of the Rings, the movies growing up, was that in all of, in many of the battle scenes, I think Peter Jackson does a really good job portraying like the cost of war and that this is not mm-hmm. um this is not something to like be happy about. It's not something to aspire to. And I think Tamara Pierce does this really well on the page um and it starts from the beginning of the first book when she's having that conversation with Maud, who says, have you thought of the lives that you're going to take? And Alana sort of sheepishly admits that she had not. Um, And then, of course, there's that whole sort of philosophical question about whether she should use her magic to heal people, to make up for that debt in killing that she's Mm going to, you know, commit as a knight. And we see that play out here where you get to meet all of these soldiers who have been, you know, seemingly like somehow drafted into this battle Mm -hmm. they don't necessarily care about this valley right um and then you see some of them die and you see alana killing people who she knows similarly like they're just from a neighboring country they're just fighting because their leaders told them to do this not because you know there's anything um personal that they yeah there's no personal stake that they have so i thought that was really well done Um, and then something else that I just love about Alana and I think is a theme and characteristic of hers that they build up throughout the series is that she's just constantly trying to give everything that she has. And so one perfect example of that is like actually many, right? She faints when she is healing people, um, with Duke Baird Mm -hmm. because she's just like going too far. And then when she tries to help Thor, she... Uh, sort of overextends herself. So that's... Uh, yeah, she even... She, th- she like, says those words when she's, like, 
oh, good, great mother goddess, I've overextended myself. Yeah. But, oh, I mean, that part also is just so profound when Thor is in his dying moments and he says, I just want to sleep. Yeah. And she uses her magic to help him sleep, even though she also has a huge gash in her arm and is, like, bleeding out. And yeah. And she's like... He's like, oh, I can tell you're hurt, so like, don't worry, I'm gonna die soon enough anyway. And she's like, no, I'll help you. Yeah, and can we talk about the fact that the Black God shows up? So in this first yes. half of this book, we get the appearance of two gods, um, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, the, the scene with the Great Mother Goddess at the beginning of the book made such a huge impression on me. Like, I can, I can visualize it so clearly. Um, and how, how sort of strange is it that she has this relationship with what appears to be an omnipotent being, um, Mm -hmm. you know, so we'll, we'll certainly talk about that, you know, throughout some of these segments. Um, any other, any other things you want to add about first impressions? I think that those are my main ones and I am pumped to get into our next segment, which is fantasy land where we talk about tropes that we've noticed and talk about how Tamara Pierce either subverted them or added to them. So the first trope that I want to personally talk about is the role of love in a story. Let's so do it. I, obviously love always plays a central role in a lot of these types of stories. The most mm-hmm famous in my head, which also, this is in my own head, so the most famous really just means nothing except in the land of Kayla's brain. (laughs) Uh, But I would say is Harry Potter and Dumbledore's whole, like, you're going to beat Voldemort because you have love and he doesn't have love. Mm. And that's one of the first things that the mother goddess says. She says to Alana, you're afraid of love. You're afraid of not just falling in love, which she does talk about. And again, can't wait to talk about that more later, but you're afraid to be loved by someone. And she says, but you, my daughter, yes, exactly. Learn to love. You have been given a hard road to walk. Love will ease it. And I love that. And it is a huge trope. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any thoughts about it? Um, I think that's true. I think it is, uh, from, like, the fantasy books that I have read, I feel like it is more common in the more modern fantasy stories because you get more of the focus on, like, the internal um, characteristics mm-hmm. of a character. So you're, you're shifting from, like, this is the strongest person, this is the noblest person, this is the bravest person, to um, certain characteristics that I think are really important to highlight for the reader. Um, and it is nice. I I think it also comes back to this theme that we've been talking about, um, throughout the series, which is that this is a coming of age story. She's growing Mm -hmm. up before our eyes. You know, she started out as a 10 year old. Now she's 15. We're going to continue to watch her grow. And it's been for me, like such a great series to grow up with because I get to have that different perspective looking back on it now. Like, oh, how have my trials and tribulations been in learning how to connect with other people? Um, And I think, you know, when I was younger, I did think about the romance primarily, you know? And now (laughs) 
And now I think so much more about um, her telling Alana to allow love in all of its forms and in particular from someone like Miles. Um, and I think we should talk more about this in the like feminism gender mm-hmm. segment because um, there's a lot there with regards to what a girl can do or how sh- mm-hmm. how a girl can can express herself societally and like what sort of what the expectations are for boys in comparison. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Uh, okay, we have to talk about faithful. <laughs> <laughs> because that's probably Please. like the most <laughs> the most um recognizable trope I think is to have this as I think one of her friends Jonathan maybe says a lot is familiar um you know we've got <laughs> Sabrina all of the different iterations of Sabrina um but really I think like most depictions of witches involves a black cat in particular and of course, there's all yeah. the all the superstition around black cats. Sailor Moon, for example. Yes, Sailor Moon. I <laughs> love Sailor Moon. Luna. Um, Luna is a black cat. Love it. Um, have you watched Kiki's Delivery Service? No, but <gasps> it's I know so about it. <laughs> good. You have to watch it, Kayla, because you love witches. Oh my God, you're gonna love it. I do love witches, and I love cats. And, and yeah, I talking hope that black cat. Did you know that black cats are actually adopted less than all other cats because of some of their negative depictions in stories? Oh, I, I do know that. It makes me so sad. Black cats so are so So everyone who's beautiful. listening. I know. Yeah, go out and adopt go. a black cat today. <laughs> today. <laughs> right Can't now. Can't wait to see all the jumps in black cat adoptions that happen because of us. <laughs> um. Yeah, and and I think we've mentioned this before, but Kayla has a really beautiful cat named Pearl, and on our podcast cover, which I've recently updated so it's now in color, you can see our artist um, Nadim drew her eyes as purple as a nod to Faithful. It's kind of like we are the episodes of WandaVision, starting off in black and white, and now we are Ooh, we have color. I like that comparison. We did it on purpose. Speaking of witches. <laughs> We did it definitely. <laughs> also, I have a very strong feeling that Pearl is going to make her presence known in this episode because she's been very loud today. So if you <laughs> hear a cat, it's either Faithful or Pearl. Not yeah. sure. <laughs> we don't know which. <laughs> All right, um, which oh. trope do you want to talk about next? Yeah, I wanted to talk about um, the depiction of class because something that sh- has struck me about these books since reading the other books and then coming back to them is how the f- entire first book with the exception of George focuses on the nobles and the royals. And we don't really get, again, other than going to the dancing dove, um, we don't really get a look at other classes. So it's interesting to get this mm-hmm. first look at um, sort of like general soldiers who wouldn't have had the opportunity to try for their knighthood. So they mm-hmm. are warriors too. But they um, they have a little bit of a different culture, and there's that moment when she first meets Thor, when they're all eating, and um, you can tell that there's some distrust. There are mm-hmm. tensions between the sort of general soldier class, which I assume is like lower class, 
um, and then the nobles. And obviously that is like sort of brought out and um, stoked by Jem Tanner, but but exists, ugh, Jem. Um, (laughs) But but exists already because, you know, clearly like Jem provokes that tension, but Thor is still worried like, oh, are you spying? you know, on behalf of Jonathan or the other royals. And and that sort of um, discomfort, tension between these two groups of people, I think, helps us get a better sense of what's going on in Tortal in terms of mm-hmm. the hierarchy of class. And I say class, you know, um, it's different than what we have in, like, a capitalist system where class is only determined by the amount of money that you have. Um, here, this is a feudal system because right. you inherit your status and you might have a lot of money, you might have not a lot of money, um, but regardless, you're limited in what you can do and what sort of life paths you can take yeah. by who There's your parents no, were. There's no, like, upward mobility. Right. Yeah. Going back to Jem for a second, it's just weird that his name is Jem because I would really describe him as anything other than a gem. <laughs> been sitting on that one since you said Jem's name. Oh, it's been hard to think God. about what you were talking about. But Alana, even as soon as she, <laughs> as soon as she meets them, she's like, "Hmm, I feel like these commoners are going to be really good fighters." And it's like, "Why, Alana? Because they're commoners." And also, I thought it was really interesting that they're all kind of like the commoners are like, "Oh, great, Prince Jonathan's here." He doesn't even know anything about fighting. So it's yeah. like, even though the knights are the ones who have been like training, all of the commoners are like, we've seen so much war already. And right. all of these knights know nothing. Totally. Especially Jonathan, who is, um, he has no experience, right? Like at least right. Roger, who has become the commander at this point um, through nefarious methods, we believe. Mm-hmm. Um at least he has experience in war, um, but Jonathan mm-hmm. doesn't really have any experience. And so it's not just like, how many battles have you fought in? How many knights have you fought? But also what management experience do you have? You know, what mm-hmm. tactical experience do you have? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think that is a really good point. And, and also that... They're very much teaching Alana, you know? I would say Alana yeah. is, she, yeah. you know, she goes out of her way to become friends with them, but she's lucky that they are willing to sort of, you know, especially Thor takes her under his wing. And um, I'll just say, you know, sorry, small spoiler, but throughout the rest of the series, she references things that she learned from these soldiers, which is so nice. Yeah. <laughs> but I think she it also shows the like- impact. She likes hanging out with them even more than she likes hanging out with the knights. I mean, also totally. the knights are far away, but she's like, why would I leave my cool new friends? Yeah, you know, it actually Poor kind Thor. of reminds me, it kind of reminds me of a story that my dad has told me where my dad's an attorney and one of his first jobs was at one of these like big fancy law firms. And um, my dad grew up working class and he's also an immigrant. So he's had to deal with, you know, discrimination in various forms. Um, But when he went to work at this big law firm at the beginning, he would eat lunch in the kitchen 
with the support staff, so like the paralegals and the receptionist and whatever, because he just felt way more comfortable in that crowd than he did eating like at the nice conference room with whatever, with the nice food with the Mm -hmm. other attorneys. And then finally one day, one of the attorneys said, hey, like, you can't keep eating with the support staff. You have to eat with us because, uh, I don't know if they said this explicitly, but like, it doesn't look good. It It looks like you're trying to find out gossip on your colleagues or something like that. Um, And so again, like, you know, speaking of the Tolkien concept of applicability, I don't think these kinds of group tensions go away when you move from Mm -hmm. a feudal system to a capitalist one. Like the idea that there's one class of people who are limited by Mm -hmm. particular circumstances, um, those tensions are going to continue to exist. Poor Mike. Did he still <laughs> did he still eat with them or did he give in? No, I think he gave in, but but he you know that experience um really impacted him because he left. He was like, I hate it here. He ended up starting his mm-hmm. own small firm and he made it a point that A, he wanted the firm to pay for everybody's lunch, not just the attorneys, every day. And um, he wanted everybody to eat together every day. And they they did do that in the early days. Um, Obviously, during COVID, they're not doing it. But I think even before COVID, you know, it gets to a point where, like, people are just eating at their desk, sadly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But there was a while where, like, it was, you know, it still was for a while, like, family style. They would order in food for everybody Mm -hmm. to the conference table. Everyone would go pick up their, you know, whatever food they were eating for the day and chat together. And it's very much a community um, which I think you can do when it's a smaller firm, you know, right. probably harder yeah. when it's a big company, but, um, but yeah, I think clearly it had a big impact on him because he still told that story like 20 years later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he's trying to teach you something. Another trope, which we've already talked about, but it is pretty pervasive throughout the books is the idea of a chosen one. And the idea that Alana is the chosen one, even though she doesn't want to be the chosen one. So Mm -hmm. as soon as the mother goddess comes to her, she literally says, I've chosen you. She's like, I'm coming Mm -hmm. to you because you are one of my chosen ones. You are in the hands of the goddess. Um, And she, Alana continues to be like, I didn't want this. I never asked Mm -hmm. to have conversations with the gods, which really just reminds me of our friend Frodo who said, I wish none of this had ever happened. I wish the ring had not come to me. And the idea that, you know, sometimes it's not about whether or not you wanted it. It's about what you do with it when it comes to you. But there are so many moments throughout these five chapters where it's like, how is Alana at the center of everything that happens? How is she the one who raises the alarm for the war? Like, this 15-year-old girl finds someone to spy and raises the alarm. She also is the one to find out that Thor was hurt and that they were coming to attack. hmm Like, that's just too... Like, those are huge. And she's just the one who's always there. Definitely. Which, you know... Yeah. Because think- she's the chosen one. That's it. <laughs> A hundred percent. And Alana is so clearly special. And I think it's, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously she has the God's favor, but all the people around her think so as well. Um, 
Oh, wait, have we even talked about Roger's POV chapter yet? No, we haven't. Okay, so that's another, like, now Roger also sees Alana as a major threat, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that, first of all, how cool is it to get that POV moment where she's not even holding it out as like a maybe, you know, whodunit. I know, know. I know, I know. (laughs) Which is pretty cool. It's crazy. (laughs) <laughs> but it's it's but the, it even you know it causes so much anxiety for the reader because we know but everyone else doesn't know right and you're like jonathan figure it out <laughs> yes but i think He's in evil. that chapter i know um he like picks up a pawn and thinks to himself, you know, <laughs> oh, I thought alan was a pawn but clearly he's not and so a lot is now added to the list of people that he feels like he has to get out of the way. Um, His Aria list that he whispers to himself at night (laughs) that he has to kill. (laughs) Prince Jonathan, Alana. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, So, but that's just to show, like, everybody else knows that she's special, but she continues to um, reject that conception of herself. And I think part of Mm -hmm. it is we see her um, feeling unworthy of the praise, unworthy of the recognition because she's lying to them Mm -hmm. um, and feels like, you know, she has betrayed them in some way. And so she doesn't want to accept praise and love and admiration because she doesn't, she feels undeserving in some ways, Um, which again, I think can be, applicable to situations in real modern life where, you know, maybe you don't feel 100% comfortable with who you are. And so you brush off compliments or, you know, you just like your self-conception is so different from how other people see you that you're not willing to, you know, accept the praise and the love of other folks around you. So, um, a good lesson, I think. I just have the opposite problem. I don't get enough praise. So. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I also feel that way. <laughs> That's why we started a podcast to get praise. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Rate and review us. <laughs> right. Um, uh, any other tropes that you want to talk about? I think that was it for me. Um, I know we want to talk about Delia, but let's talk about that in the... In the Great Mother Goddess segment. Yes. All right. So we're going to move into our next segment. Do you want to introduce it? Could be fun for you to introduce your segment. Well, the next segment is in Sir Miles's study, in which Kayla will tell us about some fun historical facts from the book. Okay. So the first thing that I want to discuss is, actually, I'm surprised this hasn't come up yet. Their dad died. Tom and Alana's dad is dead, which I couldn't like another thing that I was just like, he's never going to know. He's never going to know that his kids literally deceived him. Yeah. But anyway, that was like really one of my first things that I was like, what? I wrote in the side of my book. Like, he'll never (laughs) know. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But anyway, this means that the care of the land of tree bond Trebond? How are we saying it? Trebond? So I looked it up. The pronunciation guide says Trebond, 
But I've been saying Trebond my whole life. So let's say Trebond. I think Trey Trey like like a cafeteria tray. Oh, I said Trey songs, but <laughs> similar. All right, so Trey Bond then passes on to the oldest son, which is Tom. So in medieval society, in the Middle Ages, this is how it would work. The laws of inheritance would be that the oldest son would be the heir, unless the king, who had a lot to say in all of these affairs, decided that they didn't want that person to be the heir. Um and it seems that Tom is identifying himself as the Lord of Trebond in his letter to Alana when he's like, give Jonathan my regards as the Lord of Trebond. Um, it does seem, this is where I got a little bit confused because it doesn't really make sense to me that Tom was going to, was supposed to learn how to be a knight in the first place because shouldn't his dad have been raising him to be the Lord? Like his like, dad was the Lord. Knight? Yeah. Why would he be a knight? Cause the way that it worked so, was that Lords had knights who would fight for them. So you would think oh. that his dad would like raise his son to take over his lordly duties. I don't think lordly is a yeah. word. So um, but, just from having read a bunch of things, Tamara Pierce's books. I don't know anything about the actual history. Mm-hmm. Um, my sense is that in this universe, um, the oldest son goes to train to be a knight mm-hmm. and then becomes Lord of the Thief. And so be- being a knight is sort of like part of the training you get, but then you also go. And and I think this is sort of referenced by Alana. It is interesting that like you're not getting training again. You're not getting training to be a manager. Right. Just like mm-hmm. Jonathan doesn't have the training to be a commander um, in the war against Hussein. But th- I don't know. I don't know why. That's just a practice <laughs> in this universe. Yeah. So I'm not sure. To, to my historical knowledge, that is not how it would have worked in history. But, you know. Yeah. Because I think tall. Gary, I think Gary and Raul are also both heirs to their thieves yeah Um, that makes actually that does make sense based on what i know about those characters (laughs) right but (laughs) in a real feudal society it would be more like i'm the lord and i have these knights and these knights are the people who go out and fight for me and then my heir will Mm -hmm. take over my lordship when i die so anyway right It was not unusual for someone to rule for someone who was young. So Quorum going and being in charge of the thief makes sense to me. Um, Although sometimes that person would try to steal the land from the heirs, especially if they were young. But I can, I I think we can all agree that Quorum is not going to do that because we love Quorum. We trust him. We trust him. (laughs) Um, but there is mention that Quorum is only overseeing the land until Alana gains her knighthood, at which point she will want Quorum with her on her adventures. But then I'm just like, so then who the heck is going to be in charge? I just don't understand. I think Tom. I think <laughs> but, Tom. Okay. I mean, that does make sense. Tom also decides that he's in charge of buying a birthday present for <laughs> Prince Jonathan as one of his lord lordly duties which um, is pretty much the only, the only Lord duty that we hear about, which I think is great. 
So <laughs> when you have lords, they got to buy you a birthday present if you're the prince or the king, and that's all that they're in charge of. Um, <laughs> but next, I wanted to talk about the way that the war comes upon them. Yeah. I think it's wild that they are kind of completely unprepared for battle. Hmm. Like, I know that they didn't know that the battle was coming, but yeah. that does seem confusing to me because, well, in medieval times, there were battles and wars all the time. In fact, there was right. a very famous war that lasted for 100 years. You might have heard of it. It was called the Hundred Years War. A very <laughs> creative title. But there were just <laughs> constant battles and fights. So you would think that they were they would be ready for Wait, a battle. is the Hundred Years War between France and England? Yes. Ugh, Good job. They also they also had a Thirty Years War, which was called the Thirty Years War. Oh my God! What do they do if there's another <laughs> war that lasts thirty years? Uh, thirty Years War Part Two. You mean like World War One and World yeah. War Two? <laughs> I was thinking about that. I mean, you know that they called World War One the Great War when it happened. I mean, it would be I weird if they called that. it if they called it World War One. <laughs> they were like, oh, just in case. <laughs> pretty pessimistic. But, that would be sad. Yeah, but you know, we don't have to get into the world wars. But it's so crazy that we had them in such quick su- succession. Um, but back to. The fact that they didn't know, you would think that the king would have some kind of system where he was already spying or like had information coming to him. Yeah. So that well, part was think, a little bit. Yeah, we get we get a little bit of insight into this king mm-hmm. um, and the fact that he has sort of created this name for himself as the peacemaker. And so he's not quite so... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Aggressive? Uh, yeah, not aggressive, but also he he seems to give people the benefit of the doubt, right? Like mm. when they have the delegation from Toussaint with the Toussaint ambassador, um, and I'm going to talk about Alana's fight with Sir Dane in a little Ooh. bit, um, but it's clear throughout those like parties and events that King Roald is not really... Um, willing to see the threat the way that Jonathan is, for Mm -hmm. example. So, um, and even in the way that he is only willing to take back half of the valley, which is clearly a strategical error, Mm -hmm. um, as is commented on by a number of characters. Yeah. I know. I can't wait to see how the rest of the war goes. But for now, that was the thing that really struck me was how they weren't prepared. And it reminded me of one of my favorite historical figures, Odin, who is not actually a historical figure. (laughs) And in Thor Ragnarok, Hela and Thor are talking and they both say that Odin used to say, a good king never courts war, but is always ready for one. And it just Mm. seems like King Rald was not ready for this one. But thankfully, Alana was there as the chosen one, ready to let him know that a war was coming his way. Uh, But the the last historical thing I wanted to mention in this section of the book is marriage, because our friend George, who we all love, kind of proposes 
to Alana, he's like, have you thought about getting married before? And she's like, no. <laughs> and he's like, okay, but we get married as young as 15 here. And she was like, what? <laughs> and then she says, this is related to what we were talking about before, but she says, like must wed like. Right. Which is true. So a quick disclaimer is that women could not be knights in the Middle Ages, which we've talked about before. It was only for men. But if we pretend that that's not true, then when we consider who Alana would be allowed to marry, she would probably be set up in her marriage by the lord of her area, <laughs> her lord. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And all marriages were really set up for political gain and not for love. In fact, right. getting married for love has been a really recent modern development. Only, I would say, like hmm. 1900s on. Most people really? got married, yeah, for a purpose and not for love. In fact, for a long time, people's Wait, closest what relationships. About, what about what? Romeo and Juliet? I kn- <laughs> I knew you were gonna say that, and I was like, <laughs> I was like, is she gonna say it? <laughs> well, they didn't get married, if you remember. They actually just killed themselves. No, they did get married. Did they? They got married okay. in secret. <laughs> we're doing the but same thing did. that we did. <laughs> where we just talk about Porsche, a Shakespeare Porsche, story. Porsche. <laughs> Isn't it Marsha? No. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we love no. Shakespeare, um, but we don't remember that much about his stories. We do not. Yeah. Which is more embarrassing for you since you took a Shakespeare class in college. When I was a freshman, which was 10 <laughs> years ago. Oh, my God. Please stop reminding me of how old I am. Well, um, Next, we're going to do a Shakespeare podcast, so uh, stay tuned for that. <laughs> yeah. But it'll be after we, we finish. not qualified. <laughs> it'll be after we finish all of the Tamara Pierce books, so in yeah. 10 years. A long way to go, yeah. But my last note is that for a long time, people's closest relationships, the ones that they would get their love and affection and those kind of, kinds of feelings from, was with their closest friends, which really reminds me of us. Are you laughing? Oh, that's so cute. I know. But really, like, that was how it I was. I think that's true. How about you and me? Well, yeah, exactly. Anyway, <laughs> Alana would not be allowed to marry George because she's a knight. She's going to be a knight. And she wouldn't be allowed to choose who she wanted to marry for love because the Lord would decide right. for her. So she was yeah. right when so, she and, said, like, weds like, 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 weds like. Yes. Um, that makes sense. And, I mean, let me say that it, it doesn't surprise me that that is mm-hmm. historically true. Um, of course, I think George's response is really spot on, <laughs> which is like, really, you're going to say that you have to conform <laughs> to this norm? Yes. <laughs> like, you're breaking every societal rule. <laughs> and you can't budge on uh, this one. Yeah. 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 Just pretty cute. Um, also, that would make Tom be in charge of who she would get married to because he's the Lord. And I feel like Tom thinks George is pretty shady based on some of the things he says in the letters. 
He's like, Definitely. tell your shady friend that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think Tom. Yes. Oh, well, he calls him. He calls mm-hmm. him your smiling friend. <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> oh no, 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 that's um, that's Duke Roger that he's referring to. I believe. Oh, you're right. You're right. Yeah, but definitely Tom has some interesting opinions of George, which, again, small spoiler, we will see more of Tom and George's dynamic. All I want is some more Tom in my life, TH Tom. All right, so we are (laughs) going to move into our next section, which is in Clerk Hayward's office, where Sam discusses any legal facts or law-related issues in the chapters. Take it away, Sam. I am so excited for for the the one this week because we have some current events that I'm going to be um, referencing. So I wanted to, I'm sorry, but I just have to say that um, we get this moment where um, Sir Dane of Toussaint, a Toussaint knight, is at this party. where the ambassador from Toussaint has come to essentially check out what's going on in Tortal and see if it's worth, um, you know, making war against them to uh, get to gain the Drill River Valley. And at this party, Sir Dane insults Tortal, um, in fact, insults the warriors of Tortal, and in response, Jonathan offers Dane the opportunity to demonstrate his superiority. Again, the concept of chivalry, right? Um, so what I found interesting about that moment is when the fight begins, the king tells them to um, you know, fight honorably and to follow their the codes of chivalry of each of their respective nations. And I find it interesting that you have an implication that either each nation has its own code of chivalry, which might differ from country to country, or more likely based on people's reactions when Dane tries to kill Alana after he's already drawn first blood, um, more likely the code is the same throughout all of these lands, right? Because there's an expectation that he should be following a particular rule, which is, you know, once you've drawn first blood, the Mm -hmm. fight ends and you don't um, improperly try to kill someone without announcing your intention first. So um, I thought that was an interesting moment where, you know, international law in the present time is pretty vague um, and it's very difficult to enforce and certainly differs depending on which nations are involved in the dispute Um, because you've got different treaties between certain countries and others, um, different conventions that are recognized in different parts of the world. So I thought that was an interesting sort of um, light reference to what might Mm -hmm. be going on in other countries in this universe, which we'll, we'll get more of down the line. Um, Okay, one other thing I wanted to mention, in the conversation between Alana and George, um, Alana mentions that George has this collection of ears. (laughs) And we learned in the first book that he has this rule with his, the people of the rogues court, which is when you make one mistake, he warns you. When you make a second mistake, he cuts off one of your ears. And then when you make the third mistake, he kills you. 
Now, this reminded me when I first read it, and then again, um, just reading this reference by Alana, it reminds me of sort of the three strikes rule, which we see throughout legal history. Um, and there are unfortunately modern versions of this that are pretty horrific. Um, and in my opinion, we need to get rid of. Um, but this, the three strikes rule as it currently exists in some states in the United States is if you commit a particular type of crime three times, then your sentenced, uh, sorry, your sentence is greatly increased. Um, and so there are different iterations of this, but it might be that when you commit a particular like small petty crime, like small petty theft or some other low level crime, the third time they might charge you with a felony um, or they may in other ways make it a more serious um, punishment. And I think it's interesting, again, it invokes the idea that we talked about uh, in criminal law, which is, are, you know, are we looking at some sort of utilitarian value here that if someone is repeating a crime, then, you know, the original punishment wasn't enough to deter them. And so we need to increase that punishment um, to deter. Or do we want to send a message to the community that, you know, people who commit crimes multiple times are like really bad. And so that, you know, there's some sort of deterring message to the general community. Um, or is it a retributive theory that, you know, if you commit a crime multiple times, you're quote unquote, a bad person. And so you deserve to have this extra punishment. And now what we've seen in the United States with um, the mass incarceration, uh, particularly of people of color, is that this just compounds some of the already existing problems at the lowest levels of the criminal system. So if someone is committing what is sometimes called a crime of survival, so if you're stealing, you know, food, for example, because you don't have another way to get it, or um, if it's a drug-related offense, is Pearl coming? <laughs> is Pearl making an appearance? I think she's okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um I know Pearl is just as passionate about criminal she justice is. reform as you and I. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so she wanted to get in on mm -hmm. this. Um, but yeah, just uh, um, it's just one of the many ways mm -hmm. that we compound the small injustices that exist um, throughout the criminal justice system. So wanted to mention that because um, it reminded me of yeah. uh, you know the unfortunate ways that the th sort of three strikes concept still exists today. Is there, um, is there like a limit on the amount of time? So if I commit the same crime, maybe when I'm like, fifth, you know, 18 and 20, and then when I'm 40, does that still count? Oh, that's a good question. I'm sure it's I'm different. I'm sure that varies yeah. to state, but I think the answer is no. Yeah. Um, and that's another thing that's, that's really interesting is um, when you look at particular types of crime, they do tend to match up against certain age ranges. So homicide, for example, is much more likely to be committed when someone is younger. Mm -hmm. I think it's somewhere around like 15 to 25, um, which is, again, another argument for like, why are you really putting people in prison for so long 
when, you know, there are certain crimes that people like quote unquote age out of. Mm -hmm. So the idea that you're somehow like incapacitating someone from committing that crime again is just, I mean, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of articles out there about this um, and a little bit of empirical work, but I definitely recommend Rachel Barco's book, Prisoners of Politics. It's not that long. And um, she has some really great policy recommendations in there for how to think about these questions and how to solve the problem of mass incarceration um, and generally the injustices uh, in the criminal justice system. We, I, I believe we are by far the country that mm-hmm. incarcerates pe- uh, our citizens at the highest rate. And it's... Um, unconscionable in my opinion for so many reasons but it's also just wrong-headed like the stated goals of incarceration are in no way being achieved by putting people away for so long you're depriving them of all of the many things they need to have the kind of life that people you know supposedly state that they want them to have which is to be employed right um and to not have to commit you know drug-related offenses for example uh, to get by. So yeah, it's, it's a sad state of the world, sad state of our country at the moment, but, um, something that there are some really great people working on mm-hmm. to improve. Um, so, uh, oh, the last thing I wanted to mention, okay. I'm really, really turning the page here into an <laughs> yeah. entirely different area of the law. <laughs> Um, But I wanted to mention, because we have this dispute over the Drell River Valley, um, which is sort of halved by a river. And there is a really interesting area of the law uh, in property when it comes to disputes over land that uh, comes up against a body of water. Um, And this can come under, like, the doctrine of accession, um, which, or the principle of accession, which I think we talked about in the last episode, but there are two terms that I learned in property law that I had never heard of before. The first is accretion and the second is avulsion. Accretion is when a boundary line changes due to the gradual deposit by water of like mud, sand, sediment, etc. Um, so that the land is coming up where that used to be water, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Um, and then avulsion is when the boundary line does not change um, because there's been some sort of sudden change in the course of a body of running water. So um, there are a number of legal precedents here, but the bottom line is that um, when there is a sudden change in the water. So let's say, you know, there was some sort of natural cause that led the river from outside the valley into the middle of the valley. Then under our, you know, under this area of the law in the United States, um, Tortal would still retain ownership Mm -hmm. of that land, even though the, on the map, the river might have defined the edge of the boundary. Um, And then alternatively, if there's a slow change in the water, like the river is slowly making its way west, 
then Tusayne would start to gain more land as the body of water moved west. Now, of course, this is not necessarily entirely relevant in this case because the river is not considered the border. Um, Tortal actually, their map um, includes the entire valley. So it would include the river and the east bank. Um, but just an example of how, um, and in fact, you know, nations and even states in the United States have uh, have had disputes over, you know, what part of this land is ours, what part of this land is yours. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. Like, it, I think, you know, we try to put these lines on a map to decide where a particular border is, but the reality of our planet mm -hmm. is that it's constantly changing and moving. Um, so just a cool... Yeah. Another cool thing that I learned <laughs> in property. Thanks, Professor Watson. This is a geology <laughs> podcast now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, should we move on? Yes, so our next segment is in the Great Mother's Temple. This is our segment on all things feminist and gender related. So we've got a lot I think we want to talk about in this segment. I think we should start with George. Okay, let's start with George. So George decides that he is in love with Alana and he basically is like, I want you to know that I am going to wait for you and I love you. And yeah. she is like, no, like I don't. She says a lot of things <laughs> that I love. For example, she says, I want to keep me for myself, which I think is really a, mm -hmm. a cool idea of like independence. And also she's 15. So, you know, she's still growing. Um, yep. And then she also tells him no husband at all will do me the most good, which, you know, independent queen. We love it. But killer quote. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <I> love it. <laughs> exactly. But George also is definitely working a spell on her. Like it's she's like thinking about the kisses. She says if he was no sorcerer, what was the spell he was weaving around her? And she thinks about mm. the kisses and you know, feels all clammy and warm inside. Yep. But I will say that I mean, the first time he kisses her, she's holding things. And he literally says, I'm going to take advantage of the fact that you are holding things and I'm going to kiss you. Which I'm just curious yeah. what your take is on that. Yeah, I mean, definitely I think it comes off a little problematic. Um, generally speaking... No, no, generally speaking, no exceptions. There are no exceptions to this. <laughs> yeah. um, you should, yes. you, sh you must always have consent uh, yep. when you want to engage in sexual, romantic, physical, intimate relations with someone. So I think that's um, not okay ever. Um, yeah. What I find interesting is that Faithful, I think after that, she says to Faithful, like, what use are you as a chaperone when you're not here to, like, help me <laughs> yeah. in these kinds of situations? And he says, I don't know, it looked like you were enjoying yourself. Now, we can read that two ways. Either super, super problematic. Like, no, yep. someone says to you, I did not want that to happen, and I wish you had been there to stop it from happening. Like, you should take their words on face value and say 
and be sensitive to the fact that like they've had an experience that was harmful to them. Um, yeah. Or we can read it as like maybe faithful because he is like supernatural in some way, has some <laughs> sort of like whatever thing. And maybe this is Tamara Pierce is the author telling us the reader like, oh, don't worry. Mm. Alana did want this, and and maybe there was body language happening that like was not described that we didn't see. Right. Um, and we do hear later, as you said, that she's been thinking about the kisses. She she finds that she likes and enjoys George kissing her. Right. Um, but it's definitely, I would say, a moment with a big question mark on it. And I would say, yes, warning, warning. You know, um, yes. Do not do this. <laughs> Do not do this. Yeah. Yes. George, stop. Yeah. And it is hard to remember that Alana is 15 and George is probably in his 22? early 20s at this point. Yeah. Yeah. I think he was 17 when she was 10. So, yeah, 22. Which in middle age is, is more normal than it would be now. But still not my favorite. Right. Even yeah. though I, mean, I love George. Again, Right, right. Like, speaking of consent, that is definitely below the age of consent in yes. most places. Um, and, yeah, I think that that is another element of this, which is that there is a dynamic there where George is older, more experienced. He is the one initiating this. Um, so, to all of our listeners, like, just make sure that you are getting verbal consent um, before engaging in things like this, don't follow George's lead. Um, but, well, no, there's no but. Sorry. Yep, um, no but. Th- so that's it. moving on. Period. Yeah. Period, <laughs> yeah. moving on. <laughs> yeah. um, um, so the other love interest for Alana is Jonathan. And... While there aren't any kisses that happen, there are moments where he's protective of her or she finds herself, like, worrying about him. And, again, Faithful is the one who notices and says things about it, which I love. I just love that Faithful can only talk to Alana and Alana's the only one who understands her. Again, it's like me and Pearl. It's just the same thing. Mostly what Pearl says is... Leave me alone. <laughs> I'm hungry. I will say Pearl is very loud, and I'm surprised we haven't heard her yet today. I know. But what do you, I mean, you you know more about where this will go, but this Jonathan versus George type of situation. Yeah, I think, you know, you mentioned this last time, which I thought was very um, prescient of you that there has been this unfortunate trope in fantasy series in our lifetime where they pit the, it's like a weird love triangle thing, right? Like Twilight and the Hunger Games, um, where there's like one guy who's like the cool- Teams. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, team, team Edwards, team Jacob. In those two stories, which team are you on? I'm just curious. Oh, my God. I got to say, I think Twilight is, like, the worst thing to come out of popular culture in the history of the world. 
Okay, but you're still, you still are probably Clearly on team. team Jacob. There's no other answer. Oh, phew. <laughs> There's no phew. other answer because here's why it's so horrible. They're like, here's this guy that she's obsessed with. She's like so in love with him, but he literally is cold. described as like a drug that she is addicted to and she's willing to give up all of her friends and family just to be with him. And then when she's with Jacob, he's described as the son and, like, makes her feel happy and she can be with her fr- family and friends. Like, oh, so terrible. Just terrible, terrible lessons. Well, are you Team Gail or Team Peta? Okay, so I only read The Hunger Games once and I never watched the movies. I'm not, like, super familiar with it. Mm. I guess, like, again, just going from my perspective of what I think a healthy relationship looks like. Um, wh- sorry, which one is, like, her neighbor? The one... <laughs> The one that she like. They're both hunt- her neighbors. No, the one that she like hunts with growing up. Gail. Yeah, so Gail becomes like Gail? a major asshole, right? Oh yeah, yeah, okay. And like yes. does a lot of mean things. <laughs> team Peta, Team Peta. Yeah, so yeah. I guess I'm Team Peta, but on the other hand, like she develops this crush on him. Well, I guess she develops the crush on him because he's nice to her, right? Um, like he gives her the bread or something. Well, yeah. Peta has a crush on her first. Oh. And then they have to pretend that they're in love in the Hunger Games. I thought she also had a but crush on Peter him. But then Peta doesn't think it's... She, like, had, yeah, like, had a... Not, like, a crush, though. It was more like a, like, you know, this guy gave me bread. <laughs> but then Peta, like, is in love with her. And then she has to tell him that she's not in love with him. I love Peta. Right. Okay, well... Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I guess... <laughs> Peta then because he's nice to her and I also it's, a, it's okay it seems I so. also think it's funny that a character named Peta is known for giving people bread okay it has two e's it's not p-i-t-a I don't care <laughs> he's the bread guy but yes this this is a this is a trope that exists in a lot of I think right now series as well yeah yeah, I, I think um, rather than seeing this as a love triangle, it's more of like uh, one of the things I really love, and I'm sorry, again, this is a tiny spoiler, but it's just a thematic okay. thing, is that Tamara Pierce does write her characters as like, there will be many like romantic interests in your life, mm-hmm. um, or there might be, you know, like not if you're ace, but if you, you know, whatever your um, you know, if you're straight or gay, if you're a woman or a man or however you identify, like you will have multiple romantic interests and that is normal. And I think that's huge again, to be writing this in the eighties, mm-hmm. whereas uh, the normal trope yeah. is that like, you know, Alana would meet the prince and fall in love with him and then they would get married. Yeah. And that's not what's happening here. It's like, the yeah. her experiences with love are kind of messy. She's confused about them. She's not sure how she feels about either of them. And I think that um, that is like so much more realistic mm-hmm. um, and so much more helpful yeah. to the reader to be like, yeah, this is what it's like. This is what love life is like. It is messy and nonlinear, which is awesome. Yeah. So that's like a really great note, I think for like feminism. Um, Mm -hmm. One thing I wanted to mention is that when Alana is like, 
clearly starting to develop feelings for Jonathan. And specifically, there's that scene where he goes to get her from the healing tent and um, they ride on the horse back to their tents together. And Faithful is like, hey, make sure that other people can't see you falling in love with him. Um, It's implicit, Mm -hmm. but not explicitly stated that this is a heteronormative society. Um, And I think we've already gotten a lot of that in the fact that women are um, sort of constrained to a particular role, but I don't think it was (coughs) really firmly established until that moment that not only are women um, discriminated against in this society, but also, uh, you know, relationships between two men are not seen as, like, appropriate Um, Right. And so I think, you know, just interesting things to continue to notice about the world building here that we've got, okay, it's a feudal society. There are these class struggles. Mm -hmm. Um, Clearly women are subjugated to, you know, in particular ways. And then also we know this is like somewhat of a homophobic society as well. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, just like more world building happening that I think is interesting and unfortunately again like we see all of this in our lives um which is sad but yeah do you want to talk about delia yes oh my god we have to talk about delia i mean i gotta say again because i (laughs) grew up reading these books i hate delia and i can't help it (laughs) um yeah i hate her she's the worst but Definitely, like, I myself have been, I think, the victim of people, like, saying, oh, you know, you're too sexual or you're too whatever. And mm-hmm. you're, like, teasing people. You're leading people on. Um, right. And that is a horrible thing that we do to women. Especially because in this society, it seems like that's the only power that she has. Delia. Like, Great point. The only thing Great that point. she has to do is use her sexuality, which... Have you ever watched 30 Rock? Because that's what uh, Jenna says all the time. She's always like, I'll use my one weapon, my sexuality. It's very (laughs) funny. You should watch 30 Rock. I should. Um, I've heard it's funny. It's really good. But she... That's all that Delia really has, which... I mean, I think that you're kind of supposed to not like her based on how all of the boys are like falling over. I mean, it's also probably one of the only women that they see besides yeah. Alana, but they don't know that Alana's <laughs> a woman. Right, that's a good point. <laughs> so they're like, whoa, a girl. <laughs> yeah. And then they're like uh, always all talking about her. I mean, you know, good on her for using what she has. Yeah. To get well, ahead. And did we talk about, um, sorry, I'm now forgetting if this is in this part Uh-oh. of the book. I think it is. She's about to like, spoil something for me. No, I think, so uh, she's like sleeping with Jonathan, right? Oh, yeah, I forgot, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So like that she's, that they're sleeping together, but that Ooh. she's also sleeping with other people. Um, and then again, I think that that is um, supposed to portray her as like essentially, you know, she's a slut. She's a terrible person. You know, she's like playing with people's emotions. And slut shaming is a bad thing, and we should not do that. And like, yep. quite hypocritical of Alana, who 
also has multiple romantic interests, okay, which is totally normal, but just don't don't such shame other people. Yep. Alana. <laughs> I agree. Um, yeah. So I don't know. What else do I have to say about Delia? <laughs> I don't want to spoil anything, so I'm gonna leave it at that. Um okay. do you have anything else that you want to add? Uh no, I think that that's I think that's it for Delia. Is there any other part of the Great Mother's Temple that you wanted to talk about? Or should we move on to our next segment? I think I'm good. Let's move on to adapt or not. Which is where we talk about the things that lend themselves to an adaptation, especially because Tamara Pierce sold the rights to make some kind of adaptation, and we're holding out hope that it'll happen soon. Yes. Um, The first thing that you had on here, which I also thought about, was that the lady in the forest, a.k.a. the mother goddess, would be hard to do because there's just really a way that sometimes goddesses or otherworldly beings are portrayed in a way that seems really corny Mm -hmm. and not cool. Yes. (laughs) So it would have to be done really well. I agree. Yeah. And I was thinking, like, some of the ways that they could do this that I think Tamara Pierce already does in the books descriptively is she weaves in the goddess's existence with natural sounds. Um, Like Mm -hmm. Alana describes the way that she sounds, the way her voice sounds Mm -hmm. um, as, I think it's like the crying of wolves and I don't know, I'm not remembering the Mm -hmm. exact um, metaphors, but that I think they could do visually by sort of weaving in her physical, like, visual representation into the natural setting, especially because this happens in a wood. Um, so there, there are definitely ways that I think they could do this. Um, mm-hmm. For but sure. But then there's also, you know, the other god we see is the black god. And how do you make that, um, how do you make that happen? And mm-hmm. how do you how do you have like a line of consistency, even though they're described in such different ways? Like you want a sense yeah. that like these are both gods, at, as distinct from the other kinds of supernatural things we see, like all the magic that happens, um, and faithful. But they're obviously two very different beings. One of the other things I wanted to talk about adapting was the scene between the scene with the fight between Dane and Alana. Mm -hmm. I hope that they give that, you know, like it's full due because it's such a great scene. Like it's so much fun. Um, The setup, you know, when like, they're like, oh, you're going to fight my squire. and He can't possibly believe that this is going to be challenging. And then it is. And um, (laughs) yeah, I think one of the things that I see discussed on the Facebook group a lot is who, how they're going to cast some of these characters, and in particular, mm-hmm. um, a concern that they will cast some, like, small, thin, not, like, not muscular actress as Alana. Um, mm-hmm. And certainly Alana, as Alan, is seen as, like, a small, not super strong man, but, you know, he's still, like, can beat a full knight in a sword fight. And so... Yeah. I think we're all just hoping that that is well represented when it comes to like physical stature um, and whatnot. Um, but it's not just physical strength, right? Like clearly she is 
incredibly fast with her sword. And, and I think that's something that's commented on in a lot of her fights. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's like really well practiced in the different, I forget what they're called, like dance patterns or whatever. Um, which I only know from things like the princess bride when they have that conversation about like, <laughs> Oh, you're going to try the Sicilian defense or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know any more about sword fighting than that. Um, but clearly there is like an art to it. Um, it actually reminds me a little bit of chess, uh, where chess player, you know, expert chess players memorize these different patterns and then right. they can recognize it in their opponent and then they know which pattern they should respond with. So, yeah, it's very much like a mental game. made me think game. of the, uh, the, the wonky feint, I think it's called, from Harry Potter. It's a move that uh, Crumb does where he, like, <laughs> goes up really fast and then, like, drops. <laughs> Quidditch. <laughs> So great. Um, anything else that we want to talk about with adaptation? Um, I mean, I think that there's going to be more war, so I think we should wait to talk about what the war could look like yeah. for our next episode. Great. Which brings us to our final segment, which is a winner. Do you have an idea? Oh, man, there's so many great candidates, but I think there's really one that shines the brightest for you for me Who is which it? is faithful <gasps> i was gonna say faithful <laughs> yes yeah he just adds like so We're much so in sync <laughs> definitely he adds yes. so much great humor and yes um yeah i don't know it's just like i want to meet him so badly i want a talking cat in my life you already have a talking cat <laughs> yeah but <laughs> this this part is so funny when when she's like talking to Faithful and like, you know, Faithful just looks at her and that's how they talk. Yeah. And then Jonathan goes, are you two talking? <laughs> and Alana's like, ask Faithful. I just answer his questions. So good. So good. <laughs> oh my God. Thank goodness. Oh, and Faithful's always there and worrying about her. Yeah. Faithful's the best. He's great. I'm glad that we are on the same page about that. Definitely. Definitely. All right. Um, well, thank you everyone for listening. We've been having some good responses so far to the podcast. And so we decided to make a Gmail account so that if you have any questions or anything that you want us to talk about on the show, or if we made a horrible mistake and you want (laughs) to let us know that (laughs) we're pronouncing something wrong or something that we said is a little bit off, which we welcome. We are not experts in any way. Please reach out to us via Gmail. We have an email address that is the dancing dove podcast at gmail.com. Yep. And we would love to hear from you about your experience with us. We also have a website, which I'm going to link in the episode description. Um, so feel free to go to our website and you can write a comment there as well. Thanks so much again for joining us this week. If you feel interested, check out our show notes on our website at thedancingdevpodcast.podbean.com. Thanks so much, everyone. Bye. (laughs) 
As always, thank you so much to the Silverman Brothers, to Arif for our beautiful music, and to Nadim for our wonderful cover art, which we now have up in color. We'd also like to give a shout out to the folks who have given us feedback on the pod, so continue to do so if you can via email or whichever podcast app you're using today. to the dancing dove podcast at gmail.com.